Hey everyone, uh, welcome to the podcast. It's my great honor to host Burton Richardson uh, this week, and I'm really excited about this interview. Burton, thank you for joining us. It is my pleasure, and thank you for all you do for the jiu-jitsu community. Uh, I've been following you for a long time, and it's, it's really great. Just uh, You're such a great representative of the arts. Uh, I appreciate that. That means a lot coming from you. Um, for those that, that may not be as familiar with uh, you know, your very extensive background. Could you uh, go over your, your training history and, um, and the arts that you, you love? Okay. Uh, I will do it a brief synopsis. Sure. Um, uh, it's been a long journey. So I grew up in a place called Carson, California, and uh, it's a great place to grow up uh, to me because you get to know things that happen and, you know, you're not you, know, you you get to see what real life uh, brings you sometimes. So growing up there, uh, it's pertinent that when I was nine years old, there's an incident where a much older, very large predator uh, mm. saw me walking home and uh, coerced me through violent uh, threats of violence to go to where he wanted me to go. And that turned out to be a very horrible experience and uh, probably only lasted an hour but that uh let's just say that made uh, such an impact on my life because i i experienced uh being you know threatened with death over and over again by someone who could do it uh i had no recourse whatsoever he was so much bigger and stronger and all that and uh, that there just there are really really bad people out there and so with that, my interest in martial arts, I'm sure, peaked self-defense. And uh, when I was maybe 12, 13, I was playing basketball at a local park. And somebody brought this magazine. They said, check this out. It was a Bruce Lee magazine. It was about, it was, uh, I think it was Enter the Dragon. And that was really interesting to me. So years later, uh, someone took me to a place close to my house. And it was the Kali Academy run by Dan Inosanto and Richard Basillo. Mm -hmm. And they were both students of Bruce Lee. And, of course, Dan Inosanto was the person that when Bruce Lee went to do the movies, Bruce Lee left him in charge of the, uh, for the, the teaching duties at Bruce Lee's school in uh, Los Angeles. So I got to start training in 1980. So I went there first in 79, signed up, and there was a waiting list in 1980, got the call, went in, start training. Uh, first, I only trained during the summers because I was going to USC. I uh, studied biology, and uh, there's a four-year honors course in writing and liter literature. Uh, but as soon as that was done, I was ill and had these, all these digestive problems, and I decided I'm going to take one year off before going to med school, and I'm just going to do what I want to do for the first time in my life. And guess what that was? martial arts. So uh, that one year has been uh, now, what, 40 years or something? It's crazy. But um, uh, yeah, it's been, uh, actually, it's been 38 years. But um, yeah, it's been a, a great journey. The arts that I love, Dan Inosanto taught Bruce Lee's Jeet Kune Do. He taught Filipino Kali, Indonesian Silat, uh, Thai boxing, those are the, the main things we, we learned, Wing Chun, aspects of Wing Chun. And through that, yeah, I learned a lot of different things. And I uh, became an instructor. And basically what I did is I lived in abject poverty. I lived in a little camper trailer in the parking lot of a dog and cat hospital in downtown L.A. for five years. And all I did was train. Uh, I mean, I had side jobs to make enough for food, but... I lived in the trailer and I took care of the dogs and cats at night. I was just there to make sure nothing happened. And so I didn't have to pay rent. Uh, it was also the, the height of the gang wars uh, in L.A., that, that era. And so the last two years, literally, I heard gunfire every night as I went to bed. Uh, so, yeah, these are things that make you more interested in your self-defense. So I, I did start martial arts for self-defense. And what I found, and this was just... Uh, me, I started competing and I first started competing in stick fighting. And when I did, what I found out to make a long story short 
was that, wow, I didn't really know how to stick fight. I knew a lot of techniques. And I'm going to tell you, Dan Inosanto told me and told the class numerous times that if you want to fight, if we're, you're doing the fighting part, it's like this. Here's the art also. And I focused on art because it was so cool. I you know, doing all these amazing things and it was really cool. Then I started focusing on the fighting part. Okay. Let's fast forward a little bit. And I was able to apply my C-Lot. So there's a group called Dog Brothers, a uh, stick mm-hmm. fighting group, where yes. basically the idea was, hey, let's take heavy stick, uh, just put a helmet on, head protection, hand, some hand protection, and let's fight all out, 100%, and see what happens. And so I started doing that before it was called Dog Brothers. And uh, then... That made a big difference on me because even though I, I learned how to change my approach to be successful in the stick fighting tournaments, when there was no protection except for your stick and your skill, it was another thing, especially with that full power and the fear of actually being injured because the stick fighting tournaments had protection. So you're probably not going to get hurt. Uh, but now you're in a position if somebody hits you in the knee, you could have your kneecap broken and etc. So in that evolution, uh, I then was teaching a seminar over here in Hawaii, and uh, this is after I had changed and said, you know, I want to go more functional with everything, and uh, somebody came to this seminar, and his name was Egan Inoue, and Egan did jujitsu, and I was supposed to have a jujitsu person at the seminar, but unfortunately, the last moment, he called, like two days before we were leaving, he said, oh, you know, I can't make it. And so we didn't have anybody to teach jujitsu, but I just told everybody. I was like, hey, somebody said, hey, this guy, he knows some jujitsu, and he's my jujitsu instructor. He was a blue belt at that time, Egan was. So Egan starts showing, like, wow, this guy seems pretty good. And make a long story short, there I ended up, I'd come to Egan's house here in Hawaii, and I would uh, stay at his house. I'd teach him kickboxing, and he would teach me jujitsu. Uh, so that went on for a while. And it turned out then Egan became the first non-Brazilian to win a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu World Championship. So he won the Blue Belt World Championship. Following year, he went back. He won the Purple Belt World Championship. Uh, And the guy was already a world champion in racquetball, two-time world champion in racquetball. So he's just a phenomenal athlete. But what Egan really knows how to do is how to train super efficiently, incredibly efficiently. So, you know, in jujitsu, all the isolated rounds, a start side control, yeah. or, you know, just try to pass a guard and stuff. Egan was doing that from the very beginning. And uh, so, and then from there, I found out, like, oh, man, my kickboxing isn't that good either, and uh, this and that. And so, I got into early MMA. Uh, Egan did MMA, and I was helping him train for that. Uh, I helped train his brother and cornered his brother, Ensign, uh, in fights in Japan. Ensign's a legend. MMA. And so just through that, the whole process started and uh, it's, it's been amazing. And I just, I love all these arts, but jujitsu, I mean, I really love all the arts. Jujitsu is just so deep, right? I mean, you learn every time you go, you learn something, right? And after all these years of training, we're always learning. And it's just, it's just amazing. Oh, I couldn't agree more on the jujitsu front. It's surprisingly deep. People, until you're a few years in, I mean, good jujitsu always has that feeling of like being inspiring and slightly frustrating at the same time. Like, <laughs> exactly. Uh, I I just had one of my students uh, recently had a a bad experience in an open mat. So he goes to this open mat, and he's an advanced. Uh, he's a higher belt. He's not a black belt yet, but he, he goes and he basically a bunch of guys crushed him. Right. So, uh, but that's part of the journey. That's such an important part of the journey is when you get to that point where you're like, Hey, I'm doing pretty well. I'm handling people here. And all of a sudden, somebody puts the hammer down. You're like, Oh, I have, I have weaknesses. And all those guys knew my weakness. (laughs) And that's just the way it goes. Right. And, you know, I mean, even as a black belt, I I still have, you know, some days are not, not great. And, and accepting that. That means is, you're uh, doing it right. 
<laughs> you know, yeah, it's it's the truth, and and there's some kind of search for truth that uh, attracted me with BJJ and you know other martial arts. But uh, is that what is it for you? Is it a search for truth? Is it a search for? Uh, I mean, certainly it's way beyond effectiveness at your level and with your experience. It's about effectiveness, but it, I'm sure it's more than that. Yes, and, and the what I tell what I tell everybody is the first what it's, we're first about is honesty, honesty first, because you cannot find truth without being totally honest. And this goes back to my science background, where in science, what you do, what you're supposed to do, because and scientists are human, and a lot of people start having biases and they start skewing. Uh, their experiments and such and, and their data, they can they pick and choose and skew it toward what they want it to be. That's not how it should be. We should just totally be reliant on the data that is that happens from a good test. So the scientific method, which I apply to martial arts, is first you have a hypothesis and maybe that's a technique or it's a tactic. Then what you need to do is take that hypothesis and test it, but under realistic conditions in an an actual sort of environment. So the analogy I have is, so imagine I, I tell you, hey, Roy, I came up with this sunscreen. It's unbelievable. And it's just a certain baby oil and this and that. And it just works so well. I mean, what I did is I put it on. I went down to Waikiki Beach. And I, I stayed there from 8 p.m. to 6 a.m. No burn at all. I mean, it's unbelievable. Right. Well, that's just a bad test. You know, I could say, yeah, I was at the beach for, you know, how many, eight hours or 12, 10 hours and nothing happened, but it's a bad test. And so in the science community, what we do is somebody comes up with a hypothesis, they test it and they have come up with a new theory and they say, hey, look at this. We have proven that this is the way it is. Well, immediately all a whole bunch of other scientists in that same field go and try to do, do the same test and see if they can duplicate the results. And if the results can be duplicated, they say, okay, well, yeah, that's, it was a good test. It was about, and they, they check the test also. It was a valid test. We're getting the same results. Okay, this, we, we believe this is valid now. Uh, and the same should happen in martial arts. But in martial arts, what happens is nobody wants to say, oh, you know, I don't, I don't know if that works. Let me... Let me try that and see if it actually works under pressure, under realistic fight conditions. That becomes very disrespectful in martial arts, which it shouldn't. Because in jujitsu, guess what we do? We, somebody, we see somebody doing something, we're like, okay, let me go try that and see how it works. And, uh, because jujitsu, all the sports, all the combat sports are performance-based. I mean, you, if you're a competitor, you are doing it to win the competition. You don't have time to just kind of dabble around with things that probably aren't going to help you. Uh, and then we get into the quote self-defense realm, which is too dangerous to spar, which it's not. Uh, and then we get into that little nebula saying, well, you know, 4,000 years ago, this guy did it to whatever. Yeah. So it's just all about let's, for me, answering your question is yes, the search for truth is that constantly opening it up and seeing deeper in and finding something uh, you know, and somebody shows you something or there were, or they do it to you and you go, this is such a simple way to do. It and it's a better solution than what I've been doing. And it's just enlightening and it's humbling. And it's, it's, to me, it's joyful. Joy, <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah. That is, uh, often missed on, on the mats, uh, especially in some, in some school and some arts, you know, um, I remember the early days of BJJ. There wasn't a lot of joy in the mats. It was it was like it was intense. The, the guys that were in BJJ would the, nowadays it would go straight to MMA because they wanted to know how to fight and they wanted to feel it. And you know, I I, I couldn't even drill a technique at times because they're just so resistant. They want to they want to get you know into it right away. Um, and I think we've really come so far. Uh, in terms of openness, in terms of, you know, having that umbrella of Budo accept more people into the art and understand that some people are hobbyists, some people are competitors. 
some people have, you know, people have a different focus. And I do think there's been an expansion as we, as we open it up uh, to more people. You know, there's, there's a lot more joy in the mats. Much. Um, I would totally, yeah, I mean, clearly, I agree. And that's what I always tell people when I first started training. People were doing jujitsu. I was doing jujitsu with the MMA mentality. We're doing this to go fight or valetudo mentality. That's what we're doing the jujitsu for is to, to be able to prevail in a situation where there are punches and elbows and headbutts and you have to get through the punches and kicks to take the person to the mat. I mean, that was the, that was it. And that's how we trained. And it was very intense because you can't, you know, you can really get hurt. You go into a valetudo event without being well prepared. And, uh, yeah, it was just all fighting based. Now, like you said, it's so nice that more people can come in. But then if my point of view is sometimes maybe it goes a little too far because there are people that, uh, you know, people are coming in and I just believe that every, even a hobbyist should be developing functional fighting skills. And mm -hmm. I, I, and then to take it another step, I'm very self-defense oriented with the BGD for the street. But even say just doing jujitsu, just the idea that you can go in and just as long as you show up for a certain number of classes, then you get pr promoted to the next belt or the stripe. And that those classes may not include any rolling time at all. And uh, I think that's a disservice because as we were talking about earlier, the humility, so much of the character building comes from the failure. And if you take away the sparring, not only do they no longer know how to apply the technique, also they lose that character building that comes with just failing and being crushed and then thinking you're pretty good and then getting crushed by somebody that you think shouldn't crush you. Uh, and then just the, you know, people start thinking that they're pretty invincible because they know this jujitsu stuff. Uh, if you roll a lot, like I said, you know, if at uh, our level, our amount of experience in the art, and we go and we have days where just it wasn't a good time on the mat. I mean, it's always a good time to me because obviously right. we learned. But uh, it didn't go the way we wanted. Uh, but that's, again, part of the character building and how we improve ourselves. So, yeah, I, I just have a feeling sometimes maybe it goes a little too far. But I'm so glad to see that now basically anybody can go and do jujitsu. And if they do the rolling correct... Uh, correctly there's no reason that you you, know, you can't get somebody in that's 70 years old and uh, maybe a little bit frail but they can roll if the partner knows how to roll and without hurting them so mm. I, that's that's my feeling on it i think that's a perfect segue to talk about bjj for the street and how it differentiates itself from um sport jiu-jitsu i think we could just say sport jiu-jitsu um, talk about, you know, your motivation for choosing that specialty and, and, um, and anything else. Okay. So when I started, I did start for self-defense purposes, especially from that incident, uh, when I was nine and that my, my whole idea for, or purpose was self-defense. I didn't want that to ever happen to me again. I didn't want to ever be in a situation where someone could physically dominate me and I had no recourse. So that was the thing. So as I trained and I went in, uh, I kind of lost sight of that because I wasn't doing enough sparring and, and testing and such. So then as we continued on and I uh, realized, wow, MMA this is the thing. And so trained MMA for years and years and, of course, doing jiu-jitsu. And then in 2006, I got my, uh, my black belt and uh, under Egan Inouye. And it was tough because, I mean, this is a really tough school. Egan is an amazing technician. He's a phenomenal athlete, but he's an amazing technician with a brilliant mind. And uh, after getting the black belt, I started to reflect, as we do, once we get that black belt and looking back and I thought, you know, this is great, but, uh, I got into this for self-defense and I know this really helps me defend myself, but how about the eye attacks? 
How about the, uh, the groin kicks? How about weapons? And so I started going back and thinking about these things. And so thankfully, at, by that time, I had the mindset that what I did was I said, well, let's just put them into the rolling and see what happens. So we already had the striking in, but then we started adding a little bit the eye gouge in, you know, simulated, of course, and that changed things. And then putting in the weaponry and all. So this is what I'd like people to think about, because I think when we, we can all come to the same conclusion if we actually think about it. So if we take someone who is a straight sports jujitsu uh, player, okay, proponent, now, if you're going to transition them to MMA, they're going to have to change their priorities and they're going to have to change what they account for. Now they have to account for striking. So you put somebody in your guard and they're postured up, you're not safe. Sport jiu-jitsu, you can sit there, close guard, be up here and wait and then maybe you know, try to grab a sleeve or something, but they can be postured up and you're totally fine. As soon as you add striking, punches and elbows, now you are not safe in that position. So we have to change the, our approach to account for those elements. Okay, now let's take jiu-jitsu or jiu-jitsu for MMA, either one. And now we're going to go into a street situation. Okay, so you might get some guy in the street that tries to punch you. No problem, you can handle it. But how about an extreme self-defense situation, what I call extreme self-defense, which means there are weapons involved now. You have to change. Say you're, you're good at MMA grappling, MMA jiu-jitsu. You have to change your approach to account for the weapons. It is not the same. If I say I'm on, I have somebody in my guard and I got their posture down, broken their posture, put my arm over their, the back of their neck and I hold tight and I grab this hand, my head's up close, their right hand's free, but they can't hit me very hard. Because my head's up close and I'm protected, they can't hit me very hard. But they can pull a knife or a pistol and it's over. I mean, this is a totally different thing. So we have to change our approach to it. We have to make sure we're controlling the hands at all times to not, we don't want to look for a weapon. Because if you look and go, oh, he's got a knife, it is too late. It is, you are way behind the game. It's like, doing jujitsu and going, oh, I'm in a triangle. How about that? <laughs> a little late, right? So same with the, the weaponry. We want to recognize the draw. We want to recognize the person going for the weapon, which almost always waistband, pocket, sometimes inside the boot. Some people have neck knives, So, which actually happened at the ADCC <laughs> uh, open tournament before ADCC. There, a little brawl broke out, and one of the coaches went and pulled out a neck knife at the tournament. Yeah, and so it's out there. See, and sometimes I tell you, uh, people look at the BJJ for the street, and they're like, "Come on, really? You're gonna? I mean, you, what's what's what are the chances of somebody pulling a knife on you or whatever?" Yeah, they're they're thankfully they're pretty slim, but if you're in that situation, guess what? It's at that point, it's 100 percent. The odds are 100% if they're standing in front, in front of you with that weapon. And at the open tournament, it happened, right? With a bunch of jiu-jitsu guys everywhere. So uh, I just believe that BJJ for the street is not like, oh, okay, now let's lay on our back and do Krav Maga or do Kali or Silat or something on our back. It's not that. It's jiu-jitsu. But we're just making alterations to account for the weaponry and especially the weaponry, prioritizing standing back up, prioritizing sweeping to get on top, uh, as we do in jiu-jitsu. A lot of people, I, always, I prefer being on top. Uh, but we have to work our guard as well because you know, being on your back in a street situation is very dangerous. So that's why we need to work it. It's so dangerous. If that happens, it's your skill that's going to allow you to reverse a situation and dominate. So, uh, I mean, jujitsu works so well. We don't want to be on the ground in a street situation, not at all, but it happens all the time. And uh, I mean, we just, and I will just say, number one thing is you expect the weapon 
And the way you expect the weapon is having people stowing training weapons in, you know, on their person, whether it's gi or no gi, and while you're rolling, they suddenly pull it out. That will train you to, to look for the weapon all the time, actually look for the weapon draw all the time. Because when we train, we're training our subconscious. When things go fast, we don't have time. I mean, one th great thing about jujitsu is you can get to a controlling position and you can pause and think, oh, you know, I'm going to underhook this guy and I'm going to try to knee slice and go all the way around to the arm bar on the other side. You, we, we can actually think, but when it's going fast, there's a little scramble happening. Uh, it's just, you do, your body does what it's trained to do. If we don't have any weaponry training, then we are going to go and default to the sport, which can work. But if you, if that guy pulls a weapon and you don't even see it, uh, it can be you know, a deadly, deadly situation. Well, well said. Um, what were your impressions of ADCC, the, the pinnacle of no-gi sport jiu-jitsu in our time? So uh, I was fortunate. I got to go with Marcelo Garcia, uh, who now lives here. Yay. Awesome. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, awesome. So I, I first met, uh, I didn't, we didn't re weren't introduced, but I first saw Marcelo in 2003 in the Sao Paulo, Abu Dhabi. Uh, I was cornering Barrett Yoshida. And uh, so that was it, yeah, in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And we're in our, the warm-up room, there were a couple warm-up rooms, so they had people, so you wouldn't be, try not to be in the same, uh, so one bracket would be in that warm-up room, so you wouldn't be with the guy you're going to go against next or something. So, um, but I remember seeing this guy, this, this guy sitting in a, over at the wall, just kind of sitting there, like, looking around like he felt like he didn't belong, um, and that was Marcelo, because he, at last moment, uh, somebody didn't make the tournament they didn't they didn't make the flight or something so they asked fabio grishel do you have somebody and he goes yeah i have somebody and so marcella went in and so i remember being out there uh walking out with barrett for one of his matches and i glanced over and i saw marcello about to go against henzo and i remember thinking like oh man you know this this guy they just put him in last minute and he's got to go against henzo and then i glance over and I'm like oh he just swept henzo oh he's Past Hanzo's guard. I mean, it was really amazing. Then he wins the whole thing, right? So that's when I, we, you know, just kind of saw each other. 2005, then I actually saw him uh, at the Abu Dhabi in Long Beach. That's where I started talking. We became friends and brought him over here. Now he lives here. So Abu Dhabi, uh, 2022, I went over with him and also Barrett was being. Marcelo was being uh, inducted into the Hall of Fame, their first Hall of Fame event, and Barrett was also, and so I went over to support. So I, I had the good fortune, I got to be in the back again with all the competitors in the warm-up rooms and all that sort of thing. So here are my impressions, is that it used to be, in the first round, the elite, the top, top tier guys would always submit the opponent, their first opponent, in like three minutes. That just always happened because there was a level to get into ADCC, which is a very high level. Then you had another level yet, which was the best of the best of the best. And so that happened this time. And now it's not like that. The first, first round, everybody is so good. You it's hard to actually pick um, favorites in a, lot of, you know, in a lot of cases because that first round, everybody's tough. Guys from Europe coming over, they're tough. So that was one thing uh, I think my biggest impression is this, the overall level between the elite and the maybe second tier, it's really closed. Or maybe there's just so many top, top tier guys that you know, fills up the brackets. Uh, the show that Mo Jassen put on, oh my gosh, it was just unbelievable. This the... The event, you know, we're at that arena. The, just the whole thing was incredible. And, uh, you know, the techniques, of course, have evolved as well. Um, some of the gamesmanship has evolved. Uh, used to be also that first five minutes when, so in Abu Dhabi, if you don't, those that don't know, 
the first five minutes of a 10-minute match, there are no points. And the reason for that was, the idea was, well, the competitors can go and just try anything, and they're not going to get penalized for pulling guard, for flying, trying things, and losing position. It was all about give them the ability to try to submit their opponent without penalizing them if they miss. But then as it went on, people realized, well, I might just win this by a takedown. So I'm not going to show my takedown until the five-minute point comes where there are points. And so they would just stand and they would push each other around in the clinch for five minutes. And then the match would start and somebody would try to get a takedown. They got a takedown. They just kind of hold and win two to nothing. And this one, I didn't see much of that. It was people had the spirit of jujitsu of I'm going to go out and try to submit the person the whole match, which yeah, we all love. So uh, right. I think those two things were – that's what I, I – impress me the most that's great feedback um certainly a huge step up from uh, i saw the last adcc and i was just glued to my television this time around <laughs> um just what's going to happen who are these guys so many uh young stars emerging some of the favorites uh and the returning champions there were upsets it was it was really like an incredible time uh, for just seeing how you know, it's it's not just I mean the, the passing of the torch from one generation to another um, and you know some of my favorite competitors like Rafael Lovato Jr. Mm. or Shanji uh, you know they went out they they went out admirably admirably you know they gave it their they gave it their all they knew their their it's an uphill battle and. Um, just nothing but respect for those guys. Uh, and to since the whole the whole level of the tournament was elevated this time, uh, it was so nice that they actually did compete and they did such a good job. Oh my gosh! And then to watch them retire on the mats right there, it was uh, yeah, it was really oh, yeah. inspirational and just yeah, amazing. Oh my gosh! Um, so. You have uh, friendships with a number of really notable martial artists, uh, Barrett Yoshida, Chris Lieben, Marcelo Garcia. Um, can, you, can you say something about each one that makes them special? Okay. Um, let's start with Barrett because we'll go in chronological sure. order. So I'm training with Egan, and one day Egan says, hey, there's a guy that just came to our gym. He's, gonna, he's been training for quite a while but he he just started our gym and i think you really like rolling with him i go oh, okay great and so he that was outside the gym we walk in and it's just me egan and there's a guy small guy over in the corner just sort of minding his own business and so i went over and introduced myself and uh said you know do you want to do some rolling okay great so we start rolling and so I start, he sits the guard and, you know, on his back and legs up. And I go like this and I start moving. I'm doing a Torianda. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, I'm, I'm, past, I'm, I'm getting past his guard. And I got past his legs. I got up to north-south. I start to go in to try to solidify the position. And I felt his legs go Roop, like this. And I'm in a triangle and I'm tapping. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> just totally set me up. And uh, then from there, you know, rolling with him, great. Well, Here's, there's so many things special about Barrett. I mean, he is amazing in his integrity. Uh, I mean, he has phenomenal integrity uh, as a human being and what he believes in and what he believes in jiu-jitsu. Uh, but here's one thing I think everybody can learn from. When he first started, he started with Helson Gracie, at, and he would get to the gym when it opened. I think there was a six o'clock class or something like this. He would get there. And, you know, if you are drilling and you say, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to drill and I'm going to do a hundred triangles today. I mean, that is, that takes a long time to do a hundred triangles in drilling, right? Well, Barrett kept a log and he wouldn't leave till he did a hundred triangles in rolling. What? You got it. So he's there at 6 a.m. and he's in every class. And when the class is over, he's rolling. 
he's just rolling all day long. And he would keep track of how many triangles he did until he got that triangle. So one of the things Barrett did then and still does to this day is he picks something that he thinks is really good for him and he just tries to do that over and over again. And that, of course, maybe an armbar shows up, boom, he slaps on the armbar. Maybe something else and then he'll have a little time for outside experimentation, but it's always leading to that, at that time, the triangle. So he, I mean, I remember talking to uh, top competitors from Brazil and they go, oh yeah, Barrett has the best triangle in jiu-jitsu. And they would, some would say he has the best guard in jiu-jitsu because nobody could pass his guard, especially you look at those early ADCCs and Barrett, you know, 10 appearances in ADCC. And this happens only every two years. Think about that. He's competing at right. that level for 20 years. But so that ability, and then I remember one day when he goes, oh, you know, uh, let's work on this thing. It's the Katawaki. There's a guy in Japan named Katawaki who's a judo guy. He was doing MMA, and basically he was doing a crucifix. And he got um, a couple guys in this crucifix, and I mean, top competitors, and he finished them with this thing. So we started working on that. And he's been working that crucifix for now, oh gosh, what is it? Maybe 14 years or something? I'm not exactly, I, yeah, maybe 2005 he moved to uh, San Diego, something like that. So it's been maybe 15, 16 years where his focus is the crucifix. And when he goes and competes, everybody knows the crucifix is coming and they can't stop it. As he's just, he wins so much with that because it's so incredibly highly developed. So if you really want to, you know, anybody out there, you want to get really good at something, you say, you know, this is the thing, you need to go in and just focus on that and do it over and over. The Machados, who I started with, they told me when they were learning, they would get one technique per month. Uh, you know, then they were, they were training alongside the Gracies. They would get one technique per month. And that month, all they did was try for that technique. Then the next month, they would get another technique. And what they learned from the first technique, the attributes and the understanding, the body field, that carried over now to the next technique that they only did for a month. And so Barrett just takes that to a huge extreme. So really important there. Uh, next, Marcelo. Marcelo, I mean, again, the mindset is different. Barrett, mindset is different than the normal very good competitor. Marcelo, his mindset is very different than top competitors, that like very good competitors. And I would say one thing to think about, and there's a lot to think about, but he would always, although you know, he was in a lighter weight class, he would always compete uh, in absolute as well. So he, he's going in there and he's competing against much people much bigger and much stronger, yet they are elite athletes really good at jujitsu and he would often still submit these guys so one of the things marcelo did is he his techniques if it doesn't work against someone that's much bigger and stronger he just doesn't spend time working on it because we only have so much time to actually train so he, he just puts that aside and he he never there's this thing like okay the kimura a lot of people may know that marcelo does not do the kimura and everybody's like, well, wait a second, the Kimura, that's a totally valid technique. That's a great technique. You can use it for submitting. You can use it for control, all these things. Marcelo never says, don't do the Kimura. But his advice is, if you can't do a Kimura, I'm, I'm paraphrasing myself here what I'm saying. I'm not quoting him right here. But basically, sure. if, if you can't do a Kimura to someone who is much bigger and stronger than you are, then... Uh, maybe you should focus on something that you can do to the bigger, stronger guy because you'll be able to do it to a smaller person as well. And so it just it makes the training more efficient and you get deeper again in that technique and you, you can start doing it against other people. So yeah, that's one thing. Also, the mindset of, for example, again, against bigger, stronger guy, he doesn't do the head and arm guillotine. And he doesn't do it because when the arm is in, and the other person is much bigger and stronger, you know, if the person just, if this arm is inside and the person could just force their arm this far, it's very difficult to actually get that cinch, that cinching on the choke. 
And so he does his chokes are all no arm. So therefore he bypasses the head and arm guillotine. He doesn't do the arm triangles. Uh, he just does guillotine, rear naked choke, north-south choke, and some collar chokes. Uh, and again, people are that, but, uh, but those other things work. Yes, but it, I just find, always find it interesting when someone argues against Marcelo's philosophy. Success. Yeah, his success when he, <laughs> look what he's done. You know, he's best of the best, I mean, pound for pound, for sure the best, in, at least in my opinion, the best jiu-jitsu guy ever. And, but it's because he thinks differently, you know, and just in life in general. If we want to be successful in some area, we can't just think about, think the way quote, average people or normal people think because most people haven't made great success. If you want great success, you have to find out how those people are thinking. You have to think differently to get to that position. Uh, if we go on to Chris Lieben. Now, Chris is so interesting because if you watch him, and I know myself, I'm, I was guilty of this too. Before I met him, and I watched him, he's just a brawler. He's got a, an incredible chin, and he's just a brawler. But then you get to meet him, you get to train with him, and then you find out, oh man, this guy is really good at technique. I mean, he knows his technique. But he was using his attributes in MMA because he knew he had a good chin. And he said, you know, I don't mind it. He told me this when I'm, I became his head coach because he moved to Hawaii. And uh, our mutual friend, Robert Follis, who was head coach at Team Quest with Randy Couture and all those guys, uh, he said, hey, Lieben is moving over there. I want you to go meet him and this and that. And so anyway, it turned out I ended up being Chris's head coach. And uh, yeah, he, he told me, I don't mind when someone hits me because I know he's in range for me to hit him. And he hit so hard. So he had this attribute of a solid chin, a really, really good chin, and this incredible left hand, especially this overhand. And so if he hit somebody with that overhand, he just crushed them because his technique was so precise. Even though you see this, oh, right? His technique is where he gets the arm bent here, and then it's all body. It's like, he would say, like an iron bar. So it's not swinging. Yeah. It's in, attached to the body, and it's just so much more powerful. I've never seen anybody explain the overhand with better technique than Chris Lieben. You know, he's this big, imposing guy, and, you know, uh, such a tough fighter, but he has the biggest heart. I think people don't know about this. I mean, he cares so much for his friends, uh, for his family, for his pets. Uh, it's, I, have, I have stories. But, uh, you know, when he'd go out to fight, he would often say, he goes, you know, I'm, I'm about to go out, go into this cage, and I might get knocked out in front of my friends and my family and people I don't even know, but all these, these people. And it, it was something that motivated him but it also scared him, I think, a little bit. Uh, just because, I, I mean, he really is this guy who is so soft on the inside in the best way uh, with this big, strong, tough exterior. Uh, I mean, he's just really, to me, Chris is one of the greatest epitomes of a martial artist because he is such a good fighter. He's ferocious. He's technical, even though it may not look like it. Um, I mean... All you have to do is go watch the fight against Lieben and Akiyama, mm. where Akiyama uh, just applied his judo so well and was winning the fight. And in the last round with something like 30 seconds left or less, uh, Chris from his guard fired a triangle, nice little setup, and then bang, triangle, got to position. It's kind of funny because we'd been working on pulling the head as soon as we get to the triangle instead of trying to get the arm across. Uh, but under pressure, he kind of reverted back to the old thing. So he gets to the triangle. He starts hitting him. He's like elbowing, punching in. And I'm yelling, pull the head, pull the head, pull the head. And it turns out some of my students, like uh, one of my best students, Scotty Shihara, here in Hawaii, he said, I was yelling too. I'm sure he heard me, right, from Hawaii. But uh, I'm telling, pull the head, pull the head. And then I realized there are 14,000 fans in the MGM Gardner, Grand Garden Arena screaming, like, there's no way he can hear me. 
And then suddenly up went his hands, he pulled the head and Akiyama tapped immediately. Uh, never submitted to anybody, you know, just highest level judo guy. Uh, and then, you know, actually later, Chris actually mentioned, he says, he goes, no, I heard you. And it's strange how athletes can hear the coach when everybody else is yelling. But the thing is, his technique, he put the, he set up and he put that triangle in perfect position. Uh, and so he has all that. And then he has the soft, uh, you know, really caring person as well. And that, to me, that's what a martial artist should be. Should be somebody who is really caring. You should be strong enough to be friendly to people and say hello and help people and not be afraid what they're going to think. But if something goes down, you should be able to handle yourself and handle tough situations. So that's, that's Chris Lieben. Fantastic. Always good to hear, you know, we see the performance, but we rarely know the person. So it's always good to get insights like that um, for all those great martial artists. So could you talk about living in Hawaii and the and quality of life and the importance of family? I would be happy to. I tell you, I'm so thankful. But here's the thing. I was living in L.A., met my wife, Sarah, on a tropical island in the southern Indian Ocean. It's a little island that's near Madagascar. And uh, make a long story short, I was living in L.A., she ended up moving to L.A. We got married, and uh, we're living in a really nice place, Hermosa Beach. Uh, my gym was a very, very small little studio. Uh, you walk out of the studio, walk across the street, walk past some houses, and you're at the beach, uh, Hermosa Beach. Great. We were visiting Hawaii, and uh, it was kind of cold in L.A. because El Nino was happening. And she turns to me. We're at the beach. or Actually, I turned to her at the beach park one day. I just said, do you want to move here? She said, yes. And so we went back, we sold the school and we moved to Hawaii, but didn't have much money. But what we decided, we made a crucial, critical decision early on. So we moved and we found a place to rent, had very little money. Uh, actually, at that time we had built up our savings from doing a lot of seminars and such. So we had a whopping $10,000. Uh, to our name. And so we're renting, but we made the decision that we were going to prioritize free time. We would make decisions on things we we're going to do and such based on how it affected our free time because we wanted the quality of life to be able to do the things we wanted to do, spend time together, experience different things. And we, it takes discipline. I had a gentleman come to me one time, uh, maybe about six years after we moved, and he said, he was a businessman and successful. He said, I want to open the best gym in the state of Hawaii for you. I want this to be the premier martial arts facility. And he told me how it was going to be absolutely state-of-the-art, the whole thing, all this, just everything you would want in the highest-end facility. And Sarah and I talked about it. And we declined. And the reason was because if I did that, I would have to teach to make this thing work. I'd probably have to teach uh, maybe three, four classes per day, except on Sunday. And I had done that before. And after a period of time, it can take the joy out of training and teaching because you're teaching so much and you're not training so much either. And I love the training. So we declined. And although that would have been a huge boost to our income and et cetera, we prioritize quality of life. Well, over time, and we live below our means, very disciplined about living well below our means. We were able to put money aside, put money aside, and it wasn't until uh, we've been living here for 11 years or so, 10 years, that we were able to finally buy a house. And we bought the cheapest house in the city of Kailua, in the town of Kailua, which is a great, it's a great place. Um, and, and there, again, you know, making the decisions to go for quality of life. It was clear with the amount of money we had for down payment that we finally saved up. I told Sarah, I said, well, either we're going to buy a condo in Kailua or we can buy a house far, far out, which meant a really long drive and traffic and all that. 
I said, which one, what do you think? Which should we do? And she said, no, we're buying a house in Kailua. Okay, and then something came up and we just happened to buy at the lowest part after the housing crash. We didn't even really understand how that was working. But, but the point is we were disciplined to do the things in the order and do the things we wanted to do and we didn't say, well, you know, let's just go ahead and do that. Oh, let's go ahead and get that school. Let me just do it for a little while. And then you're stuck. You know? So we prioritized that because of quality of life. And then we had our daughter. And uh, it's just gotten better and better. So I highly suggest that you know what is quality of life to you, to each individual out there. What's important to you? Uh, I've had, I mentioned earlier that I didn't go to medical school. I took a year off because I had digestive issues. It turned out to be ulcerative colitis. And now, all these years later, so it's, oh, you know what? Actually, it was Crohn's. But anyway, um, the point being, uh, because I made the decision to go, okay, I'm going to do martial arts, and because I had these health issues, I, especially the health issues and spending time in hospital and this and that, I actually appreciate so much What's most important in life, which is almost always your family and loved ones. That's most important. Then what we do to try to help other people. I hope, I mean, I just want to help as many people with the martial arts as possible. And my particular area that I push is the self-defense because if something happens and they need it for self-defense, my assumption is one of my students will someday need to actually use this to save their life. And if we have that assumption, guess what? We're going to train them in a certain way. And so that's why I basically train them like we're training for MMA or for jujitsu. You know, the whole jujitsu, here's a technique. Now let's roll and see how it works against a resisting opponent. That's what I do with everything. And at this point, I've had seven different people either directly under me or under people who are instructors under me go against a knife. And so far, everybody survived it. We had some cuts and all that, but nothing really bad. Um, so it's just cause of the way we train like jujitsu, the way you train jujitsu, the way we train jujitsu, it works because we train against a resisting partner. And I'm really want to make sure I never am in a situation where I said, man, I should have trained my student differently. If I trained them differently, that wouldn't have happened. Anybody can get killed in a street fight. Anybody can get taken out in a street fight. I, myself included, that's just the way it is. But I want to give them a fighting chance so they actually know what they're doing. They have a strategy and they've trained that strategy. So it's very important to me. So my, that's all I'm saying for me, for quality of life, I want to live in a place. And now we've graduated to where we really live in a, man, I, I mean, it's, it's just amazing where we live. I can, if I didn't have these in, I could hear the ocean, right? And by the longest beach on the island, three miles of sand and not crowded, very, you know, it's just, but it is the discipline that we learn. You know, if you discipline yourself, like Barrett doing the crucifix over and over and over, guess what? He becomes the best crucifix guy in the world. You know, you discipline, like Marcelo, you discipline yourself to a few techniques that you know that can work against the biggest, strongest, most athletic guys. And you discipline yourself and don't get, you know, the shiny objects over here and get distracted. You discipline yourself over time. It compounds and I compound interest in finances and you end up far. I'll tell you in our situation, we end up far beyond where we ever thought we'd be. Uh, just talking financially, we've never made a lot of money in a year. I mean, I have all kinds of friends and students that they make in a tech job way more than per year than we've ever made in a year but we've been so disciplined with it and we've had some good fortune and a lot of good advice from people who have gone have done this before us we went and seek out the good advice like a good instructor and now we're in a situation where we're just man we're really amazed <laughs> we're amazed we're here but uh yeah quality of life family i highly suggest that comes first and then all the financial stuff can come later which I'm, we're living proof. That's phenomenal. Uh, 
I'm really happy to hear that. I see on social media, you are living in paradise. I've been to Hawaii a few times and it is, it's like visiting a foreign land, but it's in the U.S. And such a healing environment. I had a, I had a septoplasty years ago and I went to Hawaii to heal and it was just, I couldn't think of a better place um, to heal. Mm. It's throw anything in the ground, it'll grow. That your it's your true. problems disappear when you look out over the ocean at sunset, isn't it true? I something occurred to me recently that uh, some months ago is I'm out there at the ocean, you know, looking out onto the ocean, and you can't see anything man-made. There's nothing man-made, and I think that's a healing thing. When we go into nature, it's very healing. It puts us back to where you know our our places, and we feel the energy. And you, you look out at that ocean and you see nothing as far as you can possibly see left, right, as far out. There's, it's just all nature and it's amazing. It's just, I highly come to Hawaii. I, oh. <laughs> it's, it is amazing. Um, what, I, I'd love to touch on one last topic with you. Um, age and the martial artist. How, how do you... Do you have any thoughts on that and uh, an approach to training? Um, just, I would love to hear your thoughts. Okay. So just to be clear, everybody, Roy just called me old. No, I'm talking about myself <laughs> so, here. No, I'm talking about myself. <laughs> no, no, but it's, you know, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because as we age, now my main instructor, Dan, Dan Inosanto, um, he is 86 and he trains constantly. He teaches, but he trains. He, he drives around and takes private lessons from other instructors uh, all during the week. And then he flies out for the weekend and does seminars. Uh, he used to do, back when he was in his 70s, he used to do, I think, about 48 seminars a year. Oh my gosh. Like weekend seminars a year. Now he's down to something like, you know, 42 or something. I don't know, something like that, 40. But uh, he's 86 years old. But he told me, and he tells everybody, he says, about every five years you have to change the way you train. And uh, I understand that. For me, so I, uh, I turned 60 early in the year. I'm going to be 61 in a couple months. And one thing I really learned for me is I have to get a sweat going before I train. I mean, I have to actually be warmed up. If I don't, I'm going to pay for it. So that's a discipline because I don't know about you, but I think most of us don't really want to warm up. We're like, let's go train. But I have to warm up and really get that. I have to take care of my body and I have to make sure, you know, I don't, my training sessions tend not to be as long as they used to be. They're a little bit shorter. Unless I can go really relaxed and do a little bit longer. But then I have to make sure the recovery. The recovery process is so important. Uh, I had the good fortune when I was a young man uh, to train bodybuilding. You know, I wasn't into bodybuilding, but to become stronger for me. Uh, with a man named Mike Menser, who was oh. uh, one of the greatest bodybuilders ever. M amazing. And again, here we go again. Top level, his mindset was different. The way he looked at it was different. But he broke it down to this, is when you train to be maximally efficient and get, and get the most growth in the shortest period of time, is you train until you stimulate the muscle to grow. You, the muscle gets that signal, oh, I need to grow and get stronger. Because as soon as you make that signal, that stimulus, which is usually going to failure, you stop training. Because it got the signal, you don't need to keep training. Because the more you train, it's going to take longer to recover. So you do short, intense exercise. Then you stop and you recover. Because you stopped right away, your recovery is shorter, which means your growth period is longer. And it's the same in martial arts. When we're rolling with our body, if we get to that, that place where we're really pushing it, it's going to take longer to recover. So if we can do things drilling and then do our rolling, do it light, and every once in a while do those harder, more intense rounds – but then the recovery doesn't have to be as long. And of course, then post part of the recovery is the, the body work, uh, you know, 
uh, foam roller and all these sort of things to, to bring us back around. And also for me, you know, like Filipino martial arts and the weaponry, I often I'm moving two sticks, like the double sticks. And this just works your entire body in a very gentle way. And I suggest anybody that's into it, highly suggest looking into that because it just everything remains more limber. And I feel like I'm moving quite well. I'm not, I don't feel stiff and all. And um, so, yeah, as we age, we do have to make adjustments and you have to keep making adjustments. Uh, my next adjustment is going to be uh, after I've had a whole bunch of surgeries in the last couple of years. And uh, I have one more actually on Friday. I'm having this big surgery. And then after that, when I heal up from that, hopefully it all goes well. And in three months, I should be well healed. I'm going to work on uh, muscle building again to, to get more muscle on my body just so to make sure my strength and my flexibility with the strength remains intact so i can do all the things that i love to do uh our thoughts are with you uh for that surgery and um thank you and i man you've you've given us so much wisdom in in this time that you've been with us um where can people find you what's the best way for them to get in touch or connect uh, you can go to the website, jkdunlimited.com. Uh, JKD is in Jeet Kune Do, jkdunlimited.com. Because JKD, Bruce Lee's idea of, of how to approach martial arts, self-defense, uh, to be the best martial artist you can, that philosophy, I don't know how he came up with all this in such a short lifespan. It's just incredible. And that just permeates everything I do. Um, but uh, yeah, go to jkdunlimited.com or you can find me, Burton Richardson, on Facebook, Instagram. Um, you know, I'd like to, one other little mm -hmm. thing that's so valuable that I found so valuable in my life, we're talking about quality of life, is so much as how we decide to frame something. Mm. When something comes up, how are we going to look at it? And that's up to us. We have this superpower that we can decide how we look at an issue. For example, I have a big surgery coming up, and it's a major surgery. The recovery is going to be difficult and all that. So how am I looking at it? Like, amazing that they can do this sign of surgery and fix me up. And because it's true. I'm not just saying it to try to make myself feel better. It's true. It's amazing how much science has gone into this over the, all these years to actually be do, able to do this kind of surgery. I... Years ago, seven years ago, they took my entire colon out. I, I am colon free. I'm gutless. <laughs> but, uh, and then, yeah, so how can they do that? It's, and, and do it in a way where I'm still around. And I'm not just around, but I'm active and I'm doing everything. So, you know, whenever something comes up, I highly suggest that you look at it and make the conscious decision to look at it from a position of how can I be grateful for this? And that takes us so far. And the one last, last thing mm -hmm. I'll, I'll mention is, you know, if you say to me, how are you? What do I say? I'm good. I'm okay. I'm fine. You know, I'm fine. But actually when someone asks, how are you? The actual, I think the best response is compared to what? Mm. Because that's really how we come to the question. Compared to that guy over there who has, you know, is a billionaire, I'm all right, you know. No, how it, I get to choose what I compare things to, you know, compared to me being uh, in very bad shape with these things, I'm great. So if you want to do a little experiment, everybody, try this out. You, when somebody at the grocery store or wherever they say, hey, hi, how you doing? Go, I'm fantastic. And it'll shock people. Uh, but you know what it does? It makes your subconscious mind go, we're fantastic. Why are we fantastic? And it'll start looking for positive things. That's just how your subconscious works. So just try that. And you'll be surprised after a while. You're going, man, I do. I feel fantastic. Because if we look compared to a lot of people in this, this world that are living very difficult situations, we are fantastic. We really are. We are. Occasionally I marvel at the time that I'm living in. You know, the world's knowledge in the palm of your hand. Unbelievable. Incredible. Incredible. 
the Library of Congress right there. It's incredible. Yeah. So, so medical technology, I would have been dead from, from some kind of like, you know, whatever antibiotics, the antibiotics I needed didn't exist. I mean, I've had so many lives just in this one life. It's, uh, and I think we all have, you know, and, and to be able to, so true to to be able to, to speak to, you know, you're a master martial artist or to train under master martial artists. I mean, a couple hundred years ago, if you came across a master of one discipline, it would be incredible. And now, now we get to pick and choose, right? Yeah. Amazing. 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 Uh, Wonderful. Well, I am, I am, I have a lot of gratitude uh, for your time and, um, and for this conversation and um, wishing you the best um, with your upcoming operation. And uh, I'm glad that everyone got to, uh, to hear your perspective. Very valuable. Thank you so much. And you are just doing so much good for so many people. I, I'm so happy for you and for all the people that listen to you. So awesome. Thank you, Burden.